Welcome to Growing Your Team, a podcast designed for small business owners seeking to grow their company with the help of employees and contractors. Your time is limited, which means growing and leveraging teams is essential for business success. The Growing Your Team podcast is the place to learn tips and techniques designed to help you know when it's the right time to hire, how to select perfect fit team members, and how to maximize productivity while creating a positive work environment. Drawing from her 10 plus years of leadership and hiring experience, here is your host, Jamie Van Kike. Hello, and welcome back to the Growing Your Team podcast. Today, I have on guest Laura Tolhook. Laura is a certified human resources leader and the proprietor of Essential HR. For the last 15 years, she has blended sound HR practices with her pragmatic approach to improve business performance. Now Laura leads a team of HR rock stars as they navigate complex HR situations with managers and help guide decisions and instill confidence with actionable steps. In her spare time, Laura enjoys the company of her husband and two children. The kids continue to help her hone her leadership skills of negotiation and compromise. And after a decade, her husband is finally starting to warm up to the performance reviews. During this conversation, Laura and I are talking about so much HR goodness. Laura and I could have talked all day about employee situations some of the things we talk about in this episode include, include what to do when your employees are wearing questionable clothing and how to navigate those sticky HR situations that you just know you have to deal with as a business owner, but are just sometimes uncomfortable to bring up. So we talk about not only what you should do, but why you shouldn't let these situations go on unhandled within your small business. Like I said, there's so much good stuff in this episode, and I cannot wait for you to listen to everything Laura has to share. So let's jump into the episode. Welcome, Laura, to the Growing Your Team podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. All right. Can you kick us off today by introducing yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Laura and I am the proprietor of Essential HR. And at Essential HR, we help businesses who primarily are between five and 50 people uh, who are looking to uplevel their systems when it comes to their people, but aren't at the capacity yet to really need a person full time. So we come in and we work like a HR manager on their behalf with the resources and the experience, but as a flexible member of their team, someone to rely on without being full-time on payroll. So we're very hands-on. We help with recruitment and um, performance management and all kinds of employee relations aspects, but again, in a very flexible way. Awesome. Yeah, I, I love that. Obviously, I feel HR support is what most businesses need, and especially before they get to that point where they can have someone on full time. But I often find that so many small businesses are resistant to it because the fact that they say, I'm not there yet. Mm -hmm. I know you said you work with people, most clients between five and 50 employees, but do you really think five is that magic number or should people get HR support before they get to that five employee mark? 
So I can tell you the organizations that I work with on a monthly basis um, who are under 15, I support them for give or take on average about five hours a month. Okay. The ones who I work with who are over 40, that 40 to 50, I'm usually about 20 hours a month. And the services we offer is about 20 hours a month. So it really depends on where you are. So for example, if you're only you know, five or six people, you may only have a few questions, but those questions are likely doozies. Right. So it might be a performance issue. It might be wanting to bring in some sort of um, coaching and development program. And really, the smaller you are, the more hats you wear, and likely the less time you have, because you haven't had the opportunity yet to hire yourself an administrative assistant, for the most part, to take care of these small things that are on the to-do list, but never really getting done. Yeah. And you just said something that I feel like is very important. So, so often I hear people, it's like, well, I'm having my virtual assistant or my assistant handle writing my handbook or mm -hmm. doing things like that. And that always makes me cringe in a way because I'm just like, oh my goodness, has that person ever been trained? Have they ever <laughs> written a handbook before? Like these are important documents. So what's yeah. your opinion on that? You know, I would never discount the experience of someone who's a virtual assistant. Those people are like fairy godmothers. And some of them actually come from a really strong business background. So they might have that experience. But the question is, you know, we have the resources to get it done quick. Right. And so where somebody, in, you know, even in within your own organization might be tasked with get that health and safety manual done, it might be a three to six month progress of a project while they're doing a multitude of other things, whereas this is our focus. And not only that, not a lot of people can say we love policies, but I can assure you we are like total HR geeks. So when we hand a policy manual over, someone just looks at it and they're like, oh my God, how did like what, uh, like the concept of putting that together, like makes their stomach turn. And we're like, look at, look at what we did for you. Isn't this awesome? And they're just like, thank God you did it because it's not always their, their passion. Right. And I, I can totally feel you on that. Like as we were talking about before we started recording, the HR policy is not my is not my side of things. You know, I focus on the hiring and teaching people how to really manage their team. But when it comes to policy with my clients, I'm always like, all right, you need to go speak to someone else because like, I don't want to spend the time like researching and doing everything and making sure you're compliant by state and yeah. and all these different like regulations that go into things. So I am so thankful for people like you that even though I work in kind of the HR space, but have that other area of expertise. And like you were saying, like, I love writing a strategy <laughs> for finding your perfect hire. And most of my clients have that same reaction. Like you say, your clients do with the policies yeah. because like, they're like, how did you come up with this? Like, where, where did you write this? And I was like, oh, to me, it's so much fun to be like, this is what you want. Let me go you know, research and come up with the best interview questions and why you need to ask this and piecing it all together. And I'm just like, here you go. And I'm so proud of it. And they're just like, <laughs> Thank you. Yay. <laughs> Thank God somebody did it for me. Yes. Well, I'll give you the, we have actually two clients this month who are revamping their vacation policy to go from like an accrual behind the scenes and to like a, um, cause they pay it out on every paycheck. And what they're finding is their people never actually take vacation because they're not technically taking that four or 6% and saving it up to take a week off. So they can't take the week off because 
it would be an unpaid week. So we have two clients this, this month who were changing it to be, you know, accrual behind the scenes. And then we pay it out when you actually take vacation. And the little minutia ideas of, of what has to happen in order to make that a seamless transition for everybody across the board without, you know, hurting somebody's income or without, you know, really ticking somebody off because they're now technically losing 4% off of every pay. It, it takes a lot. And uh, my colleague and I, I mean, we were like, oh, and here's an option and here's another option. Oh, they could do it this way. And we're like, we, we there must be something wrong with us. <laughs> but we absolutely love this stuff. <laughs> wow. It's, it's great. We need people like you so our businesses can run well and we can do, th- do the right things. I find that so many small business owners, when they're going to hire their first employee, they've never thought things like of, okay, vacation, mm-hmm. benefits, policies. They're like, we'll just figure it out as we go. And I'm just like, for some of that stuff, you really, you really can't yet. You need your policies in place before you bring the person in, especially when it comes to vacation and pay time off and all that stuff. Yeah. I always say you want to have the basics. So when like the person goes home at the end of the day and their spouse says, so what do you have to wear tomorrow? What time do you start? Uh, do I have to buy you new chinos? Uh, you know, like when can we go on vacation? Is September's vacation still on? Like all those little things, you want to provide them with the information that they can say, oh, it's right here. Oh, it's right here. And not wait till that non-awkward time about eight weeks into their, you know, onboarding with you to say, hey, so I was supposed to go to the Poconos uh, six weeks from now. Am I still allowed to go? Is that in our vacation policy? Because you know, they've been holding on to that for eight weeks, right. trying to figure out when the perfect time to ask that before they would, you know, get to their end of their probation period. Right. No, exactly. It's like your employees want to know, they want yeah. to be informed. And like you're saying, they might not always feel comfortable asking. So yeah. putting the information out there and it makes things so much easier. Yeah. And a lot of people get stuck behind, well, if I put policies in place and there's all these rules, especially small business owners, because we love flexibility, right? We don't want a set of rules to put in our box with our seven or eight employees, but the rules aren't necessarily hard and fast. Like, let's be honest, your policies are your policies. And as long as they kind of, I shouldn't say kind of, as long as they do comply (laughs) with state uh, or province legislation, then you have the ability to flex those and rewrite them as necessary. They're not, you know, they're not the 10 commandments chiseled into rocks by any means. Yeah. Yeah. I know one of my past clients, we were talking about vacation policy and they're like, well, I don't want someone coming in and working for me for a week and then being able to take their vacation. So like, they're like, let's build it in Mm. where they can't take the vacation until like six months in. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. But then they're like, well, do I want to do that? Because what if they legitimately need a day off between now and six months? And I was just like, just because you put it in the policy doesn't mean you can't make an exception and allow them to take that day off. You're just protecting yourself so they don't come in on week two and be like, hey, my two-week vacation, I'm taking that weeks three and four, see ya, and then I'm going to quit week five. You don't want to be the owner who says, sorry about your wedding in three weeks. You better cancel that honeymoon just because you started a new job. Absolutely. Like, I think really at the end of the day, those policies not only make everything a little bit more clear for employees, but they really define your culture. Right. And we think of it as like, these cold, hard documents, but really they define how you're going to operate. Yeah. So coming down to like volunteer time off or how you support, you know, your employees through time, through leaves of absence, like they really define who you are and they don't have to be cold and they don't have to be hard. They don't have to be bureaucratic. Yeah. 
Exactly. Let's talk about something else that kind of defines culture. One of the things that I know can sometimes make awkward conversations because as the business owner, as the boss, you don't know what to say, even though you have opinions about it. (laughs) And that is employee dress. There's some things where your company has specific rules. This is the shirt you wear. This is the pants you wear. Other times it's a little bit more up to interpretation of how (laughs) someone is going to decide what to wear to work. So let's talk about that, the rules that people set and what you can do when someone is not meeting your standards. So a lot of companies are going way more casual, which is, which is, you know, personally, I don't mind at all. I'm not really, after spending seven years in a warehouse environment, I've I no longer can wear high heels anyways. So this casual work environment is, is fantastic for me. And, and it is for a lot of other people too. So when you get to that more casual work environment, I think the lines actually get a little bit more blurry. Mm-hmm. So is it, it's not even business casual. It's, you know, there's new definitions, you know, is it chinos? Is it tights? You know, is it, I mean, I don't think there was a policy prior to 2005 that didn't say leggings were not okay. They, leggings were not a thing prior to two, about 2005. And all of a sudden, you know, I don't know very many women who don't wear leggings on a regular basis. <laughs> so those policies do go in flex and you're like, okay, so are these leggings okay? Are these like, like, how do we determine that? Right. And do you really want to start, you know, pulling pictures off of uh a website to say these leggings are okay, but these ones are not. That's not how business owners want to represent themselves. And a lot of companies are even going to this like policy that says dress appropriately, which is great. Um, but as an employee, as a, when I'm starting a new job, dress appropriately doesn't give me the right idea when I start going into that workplace. Right. When I had one company that I started going in that I um, that I worked for, and it was their dress code was for women was polos or button up shirts. And so I went out and bought polos and button up shirts because I actually didn't own any only to find out that when I showed up, nobody wore a polo. The girls all wore sweaters and t-shirts. <laughs> so it was just, I was like, well, what am I going to do with all these polos now that I will right. never wear anyways? <laughs> so defining what your dress code is again, back to that policy is really important. So a few things that you might want to have in there so just general expectations of attire. And you might actually want to go digging a little bit to find other words than business casual. So if we say, you know, it's, it's a casual work environment, does that mean tank tops are okay? And if tank tops are okay, does that mean spaghetti straps or halter tops? Or, you know, if we say shorts are okay, does that mean basketball shorts? Or does that mean ripped jean shorts? You know, there's a lot of variations within that. So finding a general idea that you can kind of define. I'm not really a big fan of writing out all of those small things. I like to give the benefit of the doubt to an individual. If we have a casual work environment, this is what's okay. Um, You know, maybe even a few pictures of what our ideal candidate, our ideal employee would wear to work. Maybe it's, you know, jeans and a a t-shirt is okay. And then maybe flip-flops and a tank top is not. So just giving that general idea is a great idea. So what clothes are prohibited? You know, sport shorts, um, 
yoga pants might not be high on the priority list of your employees' workwear. Flip-flops might not be an appropriate use of, you know, footwear for your workplace. So if that's you, then just putting in those little things to help guide people. Because if flip-flops aren't okay, just tell me. And, and I won't wear them, really. And that's what your employees want. Just some communication. Because putting please don't wear flip-flops into an employee policy versus having that conversation with somebody who is wearing flip-flops is a lot easier. Yeah. And it's funny like you that you mentioned flip-flops in particular because you know I live down in Florida where it's like flip-flops almost every day like it's higher but so here like people up north might think like well who's going to wear flip-flops to work? <laughs> We're here in Florida if like it's casual chances are someone's going to show up in flip-flops. So if you yeah. don't want flip-flops you need to specify that. Well, I have a, a client and they're a graphic design and web firm and um, they're casual like you know band t-shirts and jeans are okay, but it has to still be appropriate for when customers come in. So, you know, we'll have a dress up Friday, they'll have a dress up Friday for like a Mardi Gras or, you know, something fun, but they also don't want you dressing up Mardi Gras the other Monday to Thursdays throughout that week, right? There's, right. there's certain theme days that they have. And it's the same with, you know, band t-shirt and fun band t-shirt and jeans are fine, but sports jerseys is, you know, kind of crossing the line for them because from the professional environment, it doesn't give off the image that they're looking for. Right. Yeah. I know, I think it was one of the companies my husband used to work for. They were, they were casual. He's a software developer. Uh, they, they actually had their, their office was two stories, but it wasn't connected. You had to go outside to go back up. So the software developers were actually at a different part of the office than the business offices and everything. But I think they were told you could pretty much wear whatever you wanted, yeah. except on days when clients was coming in. And then it was yeah. either you stayed out of that area or you dress appropriately for the clients. Or you just have a polo in your drawer that you can pull out <laughs> and throw on. Like I've seen, you know, I've seen some dress code policies where it says, please keep two or three because the environment is dirty. Um, please bring two or three shirts so that you can, you know, not be sweaty, even though it's a, it's a you know, dirtier environment. They still want the, that hygiene. Yeah. One of the things I think is important is just outlining, um, you know, clothing that's sexist, racist, discriminatory statements uh, that could be perceived by either internal or external people um, inappropriately would, I think is pretty important to outline. So for example, I, uh, I was doing an orientation for uh, a company that I worked for. And I, a couple weeks later, I saw one of our new hires and he was a young guy, really cool, like really nice guy. Um, and he was wearing a, a bracelet that was put out by the Breast Cancer Awareness Foundation. But all it stood on it, all that you could see was I love boobies. And we were a highly customer service environment. Pretty much you saw about 200 people a day in this retail establishment. And I just said, you know what? Like, I totally get it. I, I'm all for that organization, but that bracelet could be perceived as a little bit off-putting if that's all the customer saw and didn't see the logo on the, in, the other side of it that, you know, supported the Breast Cancer Foundation. And he's like, oh, no, I totally get it. He didn't see it that way. And so it's just having those little conversations that kind of realign everybody with, with the standards that we're operating within. Right. So what about, I know this is something that a lot of us are learning about and trying to get better about when it comes to dress codes and policies and diversity. So creating yeah. a policy that allows people to express who they are mm -hmm. at the same time, 
creating an environment where everybody looks like a, (laughs) everybody looks the same and yeah, the khakis and chinos. Um, Yeah. You know, and again, it comes down to human rights. So I would say 95% of the time throughout the year, everybody's going to be in alignment with dressing appropriately. It's going to be one-off situations that you may have to deal with. And you got to look at it two ways. So the first is, is it, you know, is it religious or cultural and is it crossing a line? Right. So most of the time, I would honestly say that the, the re- any type of religious or cultural or any type of dress like that is likely not crossing a line. Unless there's a safety issue related to it, then it's, it's probably just something that's different than you're used to, but it's not crossing a line. And that really shouldn't be discouraged by any means. Right. So perhaps, you know, everybody needs a hard hat. And how does somebody wear a hard hat if they're wearing something that would inhibit them from wearing a hard hat? That has to be something that you look at as an individual situation and see what kind of accommodation can be made. Okay some good advice. But from the flip side of it, if it's just somebody who likes to wear pink leggings that you can see through half the time, that might be a conversation you want to pull the individual aside and and have a bit of a heart to heart, which, you know, if you've never had that conversation before, it can be a little tough. Um, But I think the more times you have it, the more you realize that the best way to approach it is how would I want to be approached? Right. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Ah, I like that. So in your time helping companies through HR situations, what other sticky situations have had, you've had to help your clients through? Yeah, so one, uh, one client I had, so we were doing a recruitment project with them. And she says to me, well, this girl is actually a friend of my cousin and I looked her up on social media. Am I allowed to tell you that? And she's like, are we allowed to look people up on social media? And I said, well, you know, there's pros and cons to that. Uh, and, and I guess the end of the day, the question is, you know, why are, what are you looking for? Mm-hmm. So if someone asked me, let's, let's weigh the pros and cons. So some, some pros might be, you get to see somebody when they let their guard down. And in this case, the person didn't have a lot on their social media, but there was a few things that weren't under, under like the private settings. And one, unfortunately said a comment about how she was phoning it into work, which, you know, left a bad taste in the client's mouth as to the potential of this recruit. But the, the cons of, of looking this stuff up is you don't get the actual environment that these these comments are putting so this comment was four years ago and are we going to be now holding this against her because of something she wrote four years ago in a job that we don't really know what the circumstances were Uh, whether it was a great work environment or a horrible work environment whether there was issues going on of harassment or discrimination like there, there's so much more to the story that we don't know about and so we're giving a judgment call on one comment that happened four years ago But on the flip side, looking up information can also give us some pretty, you know, discriminatory pieces of of their personal life that may or may not sway our decision and may or may not be legal to sway our decision. 
So, you know, their religion, their political affiliation, their, their, their family life, really, um, their sexual orientation, all those things really don't come into play when we're talking about a hiring decision. But oftentimes those things are first and foremost when we're looking at social media. Right. That, that aligns so much with what I tell my clients, because sometimes I'll have clients ask, can I look at social media profiles when I'm recruiting? And I always say, we have to have a reason why we're looking. I have one client right now that uh, with the field that they're in, they use their social media profiles a lot for rapport building with potential clients. So they want to make sure that this person actually use, has a social media account, like that they're not putting like, um, you know, certain like that clients can go look them up and see who they are and not be turning off clients. So they kind of have a purpose and a reason, but we also had to develop where in the, hiring process, we'd bring that in because of this, the discriminatory factors. Because I, I tell them, I was like, while most places don't have laws against you looking at social media profiles, there's discrimination laws. Yeah. And it doesn't, the law is, it doesn't matter how you find out about the information. If you use it in your hiring process, it's illegal. <laughs> so I tell them, I was like, we don't want the first thing we're looking at for, for a potential candidate is their social media profile, potentially seeing something that's there, then deciding we're not interviewing that candidate and that candidate coming back and being like, well, they asked for my social media profile. They saw that I was X, Y, Z. That must have been why they didn't hire me or invite me in for an interview. So, you know, for this particular client I'm working with now, I said, if we wait till later in the process where we've already met that person, probably anything that we're going to pull out from a profile that could be discriminatory, we can identify that during an (laughs) interview. Well, so if we wait between the first and second interviews to to ask or let them know that we're going to go look at their profiles, it puts us in that spot where, okay, we're at a safer spot for, and we're not going to be using it to discriminate against them. Absolutely. And I'm sure that client also has to have like a pretty rock solid social media policy in their policy handbook. Like if they're, if they're using their employees' social profiles as part of their marketing, I'm like, that would be a really tough position to navigate as well in terms of, you know, I I had a client as well who was in the beauty industry. So a lot of those people, when they do their work on their, on their clients, they're showcasing it on their Instagram or, um, well, I don't think anybody there has Facebook anymore, but on their (laughs) Instagram. And so their clients are looking at these personal um, beauty consultants, Instagram, and the professionalism can sometimes have a weird line. Right. So, cause they're also now representing your company as well as their personal on their personal Instagram. Right. So you really have to have a rock solid personal <laughs> social media profile policy if, if that's going to be the case. Right. And those are some of the things like many people don't think about It's that they're like, okay, we're going to do X, Y, Z. And then they're more reactive versus proactive with those policies or like something goes out and it's like, you hear about it all the time in the news, like someone posts something and now everyone wants that person fired. And it's like, but what was the policy? Like some, like there's some things where you can say, okay, that definitely put the business in a, in a bad light. There's other things where people are posting stuff. Like they're not, they're not connecting it to the business. It's not connected to the business in any way. It's 100% personal, but people find out where they work. And then it's like, oh, I did digging. I found out where you work. Now I want this person to fire you. And it's like, well, if there's no policy around that, 
the company's in a real sticky situation. Yeah. And unless there's like a direct link to the company's reputation, it's a lot harder to hold them accountable. Mm-hmm. For example, I had a, I have a client and they were on site at a different client's organization and there was a safety infraction by another subcontractor. And it was, you know, I guess the way it was proposed was quite humorous. I don't know how that happens, but, and, and they posted it and there was no affiliation between the company they worked for, the, the client they were at, like there was zero connection, but you still have to say, guys, like give your head a shake. We can't be going to a client and talking, you know, posting, but their subcontractor who's violating, like that can put us in, in a really bad position with our client. And sometimes I think people don't consider that even hashtags, so somebody who has a, a, a business that does some cool, um, like cool uh, events with their employees, and if their employees are using hashtags all the time for these cool company events, and now these hashtags are showing up uh, like concerts and parades and parties, and all your social profile now looks like is all your people do is party, could have a double-edged sword and say, well, what a cool company culture, but it also say, do you ever work? Right. Like, and when you have a client who's saying, I, I wanted this a week ago and all I see is your people going to baseball games, you know, it, it kind of gives a, a weird feeling to it. Right. No, exactly. And it's that thing where as a business, you want to create that culture where people yeah. want to work for you, but you, have to, you also have to remember, it's like you got your, your brands that your clients see and then your employer brand that your employees like see or the people that are going to work with you and how do you balance them and make sure it fits both needs? Yeah, absolutely. No, it's a, it's a stick. I mean, I do, I think we all do that in our personal lives as well. How do we balance reality with what we put on our social media? <laughs> like we want to make sure we don't look like we're crazy. We don't want to make sure we don't look like we're too much of a stickler, right? Like, right. and it's the same with a, a per, like a company brand trying to find that balance. Right. Okay. So another question that I get asked a lot is, especially as people are starting businesses, they're starting it with family. It might be husband and wife, or they hired their, their cousin because they needed a job and, and things have been going well, but now they're at the point where they're ready to expand for the first time beyond family, yeah. but they're trying to figure out how do I balance the relationships and everything, because this is a family member. This is not a family member. And even one of my clients once, it was like, well, this person is allowed to say and treat, act like this because they're family, <laughs> but I would never have someone else like be able to say that to me in the office. So how do you, what do you do? How do you balance that? Oh gosh. Coming at that from like hindsight 2020, I think is a lot harder <laughs> than starting off with understanding that you're going to grow family and then outside your social circle. So I guess a few key things you can put into place is I would make sure despite where you are in your business model or how many team members you have, um, get that offer letter for everybody. Like the offer letter should be, yeah, second cousin, Karen, she's fantastic. And I'm sure she'd never sue you, but she's still an employee and you need to have everything as clear as day for her, just the way that you have, you know, Joe Brown off the street. Right. So if you're coming into building your business outside of, of your family and, and close friends, um, a, few, a few, you know, concepts you might want to consider is the idea of perceived inequity. So everybody has to be treated equally. And that means vacation. It means, you know, hours of work. And I think 
before you even start hiring friends and family, you have to determine, can I actually mitigate conflict with these friends and family? Can I hold them accountable? You know, can I hire my second cousin, Rosie, and still make sure that when the work is not getting done, that I can have that conversation with her? Right. And unless we can have that conversation in that initial interview with Rosie, we say, hey, where'd you get this opportunity? And Rosie says, I want in. Unless we can be upfront and clear at the beginning, we, it's probably a hire we don't want to do. Right. So one of the things I see a lot in family businesses um, where it becomes an issue down the road is if you have one family member and then, you know, even from not your own family, but an, uh, an external hire has one family member and they want to bring in their brother or they have, you know, their cousin is going to be great for this job or, you know, their mother. And so one thing I would say up front is make sure that you are upfront about the possibility of resource drain during vacations. So if you are a six or seven person company and one of your great employees is, you know, trying to bring in their cousin or their mother or their brother and you're like, hey, yeah, they do seem like a great fit. Be very upfront about, or even their husband or wife. Listen, guys, your vacation requests are going to be considered as individual. So if you want to take two weeks vacation in August and your wife who wants to work here wants to take two weeks vacation in August, we may not be able to approve that because that's taking 25% of our, our company resources at one time. And that might not be okay. Or, you know, maybe if there's a family wedding and you have too many people from the same family, you might as well shut down your business if you're a small employer <laughs> to try to get through a Thursday, Friday, you know, family wedding that's happening. So understanding the resource drain that might happen, I think is, is very important and being upfront at the beginning. Yeah. About oh, I that. think that's so critical. And that was something that I wasn't even thinking about that with vacation. I know a lot of things that I think about is I always stress because I'm so focused on finding the right hire is don't hire someone just because they're family. Yeah. Like you have to make sure they can actually do the job you're trying to hire them for, or it's going to never work out. And you're, you don't want to pay someone just because they're family. Like your business is not charity. You can help that person in other ways if like, if they're not fitting the role. But yeah, I would never think of like, in the future, the vacation time, them requesting off together or anything like that. And I think providing your managers. So if the family member is reporting to a manager um, and that manager may or may not be a family member, providing that manager with the backbone. So listen, Joe, manager, Joe, we love you. We think you're great. Uh, we've just hired Susie. Uh, she's our cousin. But just so you know, Susie is responsible for her tasks and responsibilities. And if you have any issues, you need to deal with her in the same manner that you would deal with any other employee. And making sure that manager knows that you have their back to do so is really important. Yeah. I was, uh, it just made me think of, I saw this episode just, I think it was last week, an episode of The Office where Michael <laughs> Scott hired his nephew and it was office. not working out well <laughs> at all. But he was like, it's my nephew. I can't discipline him. And everyone else in the office is like, but he's screwing up constantly. Yeah. yeah so you need to treat them like an employee. They are an employee, whether they are family outside of the office or not in the, in the office, they're your employee. And then I think the clear boundaries too, right? Somebody who feels they kind of have part ownership because they're a family member or a really close friend often gets involved in things that they don't need to be involved in mm -hmm. just because, you know, maybe they have 
likely a loyalty to the company because they're a close family member or close friend. So they tend to branch out to a little bit more areas than, than necessary. So at the end of the day, when you're bringing new people on, I think having those clear conversations to the family members and the friends and the close relationships is very important. And if you can't have those to begin with, then maybe they're not the right person to be within your organization. Yeah. So be very clear up front, know what the role is, have them know what the role is, the expectations. I even remember once, I think it was someone like that brought on family members that were supposed to be silent partners, but they never really <laughs> fully explained that it was a silent partnership. And then the family member getting upset because they Where's were my voice in this. They yeah, weren't being listened to. And it's like, okay, well, did you explain to them what a silent partnership meant? <laughs> no. Well, they thought they were buying their their way into having an opinion about everything that you yeah. did. So you need to go back and rework that relationship and and know better for the next time. Well, and you know, so often in business, you see no nepotism, nepotism, like, like people cringe at the concept, but I'll be honest with you and say that I know a lot of small businesses where there is nepotism, quote unquote, and it works really well. So, you know, I know a business where the, the wife is the office administrator. He's the CEO. My husband works for my father. So, and I know, you know, my cousin has his cousin as one of his main contacts. It doesn't have to be like a downward spiral. And right. I think sometimes we assume when we hear nepotism or family business, that it is a downward spiral, but there is, there is the ability for it to work really well. So I don't want people to assume just because of that, that like, it's, it's going to be a fiery burning, you know, situation. Um, but there definitely has to be some clear guidelines worked within that. Right. Yeah. And make sure that when you bring on the non-family members, that everything's fair and equal across all employees. Okay. Yeah. I feel like there's so many more things that we could talk about, but we're getting towards the end of our time today. So tell people how you can help them and how you can get, how they can get in touch with you. Yeah, absolutely. So we talked a lot about policy today. And so I thought a lot of people are probably thinking, all right, she's talking about policy. I don't even know where to start. I should put this on my to-do list. And we all know that's going to happen like three months down the road, eventually just going to, you know, get rid of it off your to-do list because it's just a little bit overwhelming. So I've created this, it's really just an all-encompassing policy list. So if you're like, I don't even know what policies I need, as opposed to Googling, um, we've kind of put it all in one place and you can just kind of go through it and say, yep, I need that one. Expense control, absolutely. Driving a company vehicle, nope. Driving personal vehicle, yep. So all kinds of just different options that you have from a health and safety and a HR employee policy perspective, all in one handy document. And it can be found at essentialhr.ca slash growing your team. All right. Well, thank you. So I'll be sure to drop that link in the show notes as well, but that should be a pretty easy one to, for everyone <laughs> to find. So thank you so much for offering that. Okay. All right. So the question I like to wrap up with is we've all had leaders and managers that stood out to us. Think of the most impactful leader or manager that you have had. And can you share with us one thing that made them stand out as a great leader to you? Yeah. So I would say it was one of my VP of HRs um, who still to this day is one of my favorite people in life. And she had the, the knack to 
beat somebody over the head in the most sarcastic but funny way that they always accepted <laughs> whatever she was saying and loved her for it. She just had a way of communicating with people and they just said, yeah, no, no, that's right. Cause she did it in such a, a I don't know, just a sly and, and humorous way that people just fell in line behind her. But she personally really affected me because I was such a young person in my career at that time and had a few pretty big screw ups um, at that time as well. And she was so gracious and she walked me through, you know, how to fix them. Um, but I think the most impactful thing that she taught me was I would, she would call me into her office and, and say, uh, Laura, I need you for a second. Can you come in? So I'd come in and I'd sit down and she'd be like, where's your pen and paper? I, I, I can't have this conversation unless you have a pen and paper. So I know that you're writing it down. So you know what next, and it's always stuck with me now. And I won't go into any meeting without a pen and paper because I'm like, they won't know that I'm actually listening and I'll get these things done unless I'm writing these notes down. So it's kind of one of those things that 20 years later, I'm still walking around with my pen and paper to any meeting that I show up to. Awesome. And I think that's so funny. It brings us full circle to our conversation. So before we hit record, I was telling Laura how I'm not in my office right now. I'm out of my living room. So I had a quiet place to record. I brought my notebook, but didn't bring a pen with me to write things. <laughs> Typically, I'll jot things down of what people say, I guess, say on the interview. So that way I can circle back to it and Yep, forgot my pens. <laughs> I know, it's like a fish out of water, right? I'm like, what about yes. you? <laughs> yes, so, yep, but I definitely agree with that. You got to write things down and remember things, and everyone has their own, like, note-taking ability. Some people are writing full notes. Other people just, sometimes it's just little words here or there, but, yeah, that's definitely good advice. But, yeah, I would say that the leadership qualities that stood out was the graciousness. Like, she let me screw up yeah. and didn't. It, 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 you know, don't get me wrong. I, I got in, you know, a bit of trouble for it, but it was a learning opportunity. It wasn't, I never felt like it was a one more strike and you're out yeah. type of, of condemnation. Right. Yeah. That's the best way to learn is sometimes try and go and, you know, and see what happens and make mistakes and fix things. Yeah. So, all right. Well, thank you so much, Laura, for coming on the Growing Your Team podcast. Oh, it was so much fun to be here. And that wraps up this episode of the Growing Your Team podcast. Did you enjoy this episode? If so, and you have not done so yet, please subscribe to the Growing Your Team podcast so you can stay up to date on all the latest episodes and hear all the greatest tips from our guest experts on how you can grow your team so you can scale your business. And if you haven't done so yet, please consider leaving us a review. I would love to hear what you think of the podcast and your review will help other people decide if this is the right podcast for them. So once again, thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Growing Your Team with your host, Jamie Van Kite. Be sure to subscribe and head on over to growingyourteam.com to connect, access the show notes, and discover more ways to hire and leverage your perfect fit team.